0: What are the things that are the calling signs of your intrigue in this life? And again, as mine always comes down to people, if I deconstruct the whole thing is that I want to just have an amazing experience through life meeting interesting people. That's always been the thing that's been my underlying governance. And that got connected with my love of making things, you know, the design aspect, the architectural aspect, all the things that I didn't study in, but I learned through osmosis because I did it all the time. And I think that's why, you know, those are the moments when we have to just be marginally more insightful, a little bit more mindful, and most of all, courageous. Because when they come, you need to find a way of uh, riding the coattails, because they do ultimately take you to a much more fulfilling life.
1: I'm so excited to introduce for the first time the 360 Degrees Human podcast, a holistic loudspeaker that's normalizing what it means to live into your whole being. And we're launching today in Cape Town, South Africa. I'm Gina Levy, founder of 360 Degrees Human and your podcast host. Each episode is a holistic masterclass explored through natural conversations and storytelling that intend to uncondition and re-educate inspire, and empower. Here, you'll meet my network of paradigm-shifting life champions, movement magicians, mind maestros, soul food farmers, well-being coaches, spiritual teachers, nature wanderers, and human preneurs who'll make it easy for you to integrate holism into your daily life so you can live whole and happily ever now. That's why this isn't an interview. It's an education. An education in living whole in real time from exactly where you are. So what does your best day look like? And what if it was every day? Since the nature of this podcast is to have holistic, meaningful and intimate conversations that deep dive into the essence of who people are, why they do the things they do, what makes life meaningful and how to live whole, it seemed a natural choice to invite my brother Adam as my debut guest. Not only will you hear firsthand how his story has impacted so many people and places, but you'll also gain some insight into my world too as your host of the show. It's actually quite funny that Adam's sitting across from me, about to be interviewed, because he always dubbed me Deepak Oprah growing up, a term of endearment he still uses when I quote either of them or offer some well-being advice or philosophical angle. So welcome, Adam. It's really Very cool to have you as my numero uno on my first podcast interview. Thank you. (laughs) Let's go back to the beginning. After traveling the world in 2002, you were inspired by some of the most vibrant inner cities. And then you returned to South Africa, left law and founded Play. You were committed to urban regeneration and cultural reformation, turning Bramfontein a really run down, abandoned urban precinct in the inner city into an iconic landmark. And the rest, as they say, is history. So maybe take us through what happened at that time and really what what helped you formulate this vision in your mind?
0: Well, I think a vision's easily formulated when you look back with some revisionist understanding of how it is that you had a vision. It wasn't really a vision, it was a conviction. And the conviction was born out of the idea that there was a deficiency in my own experience in life in Johannesburg. So before I went traveling, I didn't feel any measured connectivity with Joburg. I I felt that there was an amazing energy with the people. I still believe there's an amazing energy of the people, but I didn't feel like anybody was putting it together in a way that could be experienced and we could get the best of what we had in offer. And when I went and traveled, because it was, you know, this curiosity that is so prevalent in me still to this day. I wanted to go and experience, you know, the vibrancy of people and experiences and cultures around the world. And after a year and a half or whatever it was of travel, I came back and the process just seemed a little bit more um, prescient. It felt like there was something that could be done. It didn't feel like some overriding, overarching, um, vision, it just felt like, wow, there's all of these amazing experiences that are happening to people that are my peers that are the same age as me. why aren't we experiencing this at home? and that became I suppose the seedling that started to get nurtured in my mind, and it was not only that it you know concurred with this idea that well, I'd been doing law, and I wasn't really sure. Why I'd been doing it? What, what were the overriding, compelling reasons for have done for having doing something that I didn't really feel the same conviction for? And that, as you know, was obviously to emulate Dad, who was a great lawyer, and you know, make him and mommy proud. And you know, this idea of you you get set in a way, and you feel that you have to meet some measure, and you feel like you have to follow some path. And I suppose when you're seventeen or eighteen years old that path is maybe set for you or the the vision of that path is set for you. And you don't really do, there's not too much application of the mind and maybe you're young and that's just uh, one of the elements of being young. It's wasted on the youth. And um, that was the, I suppose, the beginning point of an idea that maybe there was some underlying, overarching conviction within myself that needed its own voice. And I think that was the first time that I started to listen to it.
1: Yeah, that's true. I, I actually remember when you came back, because we had we had overlapped a little bit for that trip, and I met you in in Paris. And I do remember you coming back and going. There's so many things socially that we are that aren't available here in in South Africa or Johannesburg. I was living in Cape Town at the time, so you almost wanted to create this world for yourself. And by extension, it became so much bigger than that, which became part of the overall vision, ultimately. So, you know, there's that line that I always love about your imagination. How do you say it? it's, It's like walking through your imagination, something like that?
0: Well, stepping out of your imagination, maybe, you know, like a moment of there's certain times, and I think we all have this, you know, we all have some clearer vision or some clearer conviction of what we are as people. And regrettably, it's, you know, this perpetual litany of irony of life is it's, you know, youth is wasted on the young. And when you're old, you don't have time. And when you have time, you don't have, you know, there, there's that multitude yes, of things, whatever resources. it is. When you've got, you know, yeah. time, you don't have money. When you have money, you don't have time. When yeah. you're old, you want to be young. When you're young, you want to be old. When you I don't it's just know. It's
1: irony, this paradox, it's just, absolutely. Everything
0: is is riddled in that. And sometimes if you if you're clear-minded and you have a depth of conviction and you really believe, you can get those things to converge. And in the moments of convergence is is the birth point of power. And that's when you start to really understand the things that are exceptional about your experience of living. Not just because we all have our own. Rose-tinted glasses, we all view life in a very different way. You know, a myriad of different things that all influence us in different ways. But how do you get that convergence of power when you start to realize that the world that you see, you can influence? And the world that you see, you can empower yourself and others through and that you can start to actually shift things.
1: Absolutely. But what I would add to that is that not everybody can see beyond their reality. And so, you know, the world is kind of sprinkled with visionaries and pioneers. And those are the people who do have the imagination and who do have the vision. But more than that is that they either are able to or find a way to implement it, which is what, you know, you have done, which is what I think we both gifted with in the sense that we can see things before they become a reality and that we, we, we can viscerally experience them and, you know, through our imagination and know that they can be of positive influence once they materialize. So I think that there is very, something very powerful about, you know, even, I mean, this is something kids do so automatically because they haven't forgotten mm. how to do it. You know, they imagine, it's a little bit different nowadays because unfortunately, you know, their imagination is pretty kind it, of, it's a little bit, I'd say, usurped by the fact that they screen-driven all the time. So they don't get an opportunity to make stuff as much anymore mm. and use their imagination or read and then imagine, you know, what the characters are going to look like or be like. They're, they're, they're already seeing it in, like, 3D. So... The fact that I also think that we had the upbringing that we did because we, we kind of sit between these two generations and oftentimes we say we're more comfortable with our parents' generation um, in the sense that there was a lot more freedom and a lot more things were simpler, but we actually developed more um, into, I suppose, just imagining. Um,
0: we also, sorry to interrupt, yeah. you had, you know, there were four kids.
1: yes. Exactly. And it was like
0: you know we had a our own little t- group, our own you know and we could and we can and we, all of us are so different. There was this amazing opportunity to interface with um, you know a, a multiplicity of nuanced humans. Yes, and I think from that we had to pay attention because you always have to navigate who was your friend, who wasn't your friend on the day, and how to find you know a medium of living through life that gave us maybe adult experiences when we were young. Maybe there's something to be said, you know, yeah. for, for bigger groups of people, but it was also the world seemed quieter. And and I suppose generations before us can, sp- can speak to this idea that it was even quieter in their times and before then even quieter then, yeah. you know. And I, I can't really comment on, you know, where the world is today and, and how children operate through, you know, these different mediums and social media and all these different weird interfaces that we didn't have. Because obviously, part of it loses its you know the your compunction for um compatibility and the fact that there are there is a power of tactility and that's always been something that's been an underlying influence of everything I've ever done is I love people, and I go like I just wish I could meet more interesting people and that was the same thing that maybe you know started this thing up almost twenty years ago is the exact same thing that gives me conviction today right I just I want to hang around with amazing people, which is why, you know, I suppose the idea of playing, um, you know, this idea that you can perpetually be, you can perpetually view the world with the same curiosity as a child, even though that your experiences are much more varied and even though you've kind of broken out of that, you know, initial bubble and, and you've seen so much of it and, you know, I explore and I travel all the time and I still have an insatiable appetite and I still view the world with the same, you know, mythical childlike curiosity. I understand as an adult that the world isn't as it appeared when I was young, but there still are aspects of it, sizable aspects of it that I could still see the core of what it is to be curious and to be curious about people.
1: I I agree. I mean, you know, speaking of play, uh, I often say if you watch what children gravitate towards in terms of what toys they choose, Mm -hmm. again, more so... (laughs) I mean, it's 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 always relevant. But I, if I, if I look at our what we did, you always gravitated towards Lego and Monopoly, and it's so funny because you wouldn't have known it at the time. I mean, but fast forward, and this is exactly the world that you've created in your adulthood. And the funny thing is that you you often go and you still keep building Lego, and any opportunity that someone's playing Monopoly, you'll play. So. Whereas for me, I think it was I, I loved Rami Tal. For me, it was more about problem solving, and again, I didn't know that. But we, we were obviously wired. All of us are wired in certain plays, in certain ways. So I often say it's like if you watch kids, you'll see there's kind some kind of like it's like a prediction of of what they might choose to do or how their minds are developing. I, I find it fascinating, mm-hmm. and. um it's interesting because because it's something that you also find a lot of comfort in. You know, if you've had a bad day, you just want to go and play Lego or clean the house. <laughs> I mean, that, that <laughs> that's like your meditation. Oh, he's had a bad day, and he and he's you know he's yeah. he's in cleaning mode. Yeah. But yeah, I think I mean.
0: Well, I mean to that point, really, it it, it brings you back to this idea, and I, I've always noted it. I, I do think that there are certain things, and not everyone. Has the same luxury of being able to toy around with different things when when you're young, but you can definitely get a good sense of what a person's um, preconditioning is, maybe, yeah. you know, or, or aptitude. Yeah, I, I just think, or what their curiosity leans towards. Yes. And it's interesting that you mention it because I was fixated with both Lego and Monopoly, and you can go, well, that makes all the sense in the world, and you've gone to real estate and you know, you build You're things. You in
1: every Monopoly game. No,
0: so but I'm wondering now because I don't play Monopoly all the time, oh. but I still have, I still play Lego all the time.
1: Yeah. Will you play Monopoly on a big scale? No,
0: no, no. <laughs> but it's I, you know maybe the, the the Monopoly was maybe a need to win. Now that I think about it, if I if I if I unbundle it, yes. You know, I did like because I, I I loved the mantra that I'd never lost a game, so I loved that I could continually perpetuate. I never this, knew
1: that. That's interesting.
0: This. this idea that, well, you know, like I'm invincible, or I'm unstoppable, or this is a yes. force of nature, because, you know, it's so natural to me. I, don't, I like that is not the compare, like, because I suppose I've proved enough to myself in life as an adult, that I don't have the same compunction. And I'm not driven by the same things that way. I don't have anything to prove, I suppose, yes. even to myself, although I constantly want to make sure that I'm getting better and I'm evolving and developing. But Lego is the simple idea of taking something, and a, uh, imagining something else, you know? So you yes. can take pieces of a block that someone's done, which is the same reason that I get pleasure out of looking at an old distressed building or looking at a messy room and go like, I can just like, and put it all together. And there's this new magical thing that was in my head so clear, but wasn't that evident to anybody else. Right. And there's that, you know, I suppose I, the, the Lego thing, is the thing that I'm still, I suppose, fixated on. is this idea that, you know, if you allow yourself to be truthful to your calling, whatever that is, or you can connect to the things that give you, you know, put a smile on your face and give you satisfaction, then, then you are perpetually, and for me, I'm perpetually in the world of making.
1: And also you are constantly, you know, pushing yourself to the next level. I mean, just a quick note about what we've just said is I'm laughing to myself because I'm thinking it's, it's it's so fascinating how the subconscious um, works in the sense that, I mean, the Monopoly set was set up in Johannesburg and there was Elof Street and here you are, you know, not too far away from... And then we knew where the good streets were and where the bad streets were and which properties you had to get and which ones you had to stay for, away from. I was just happy to get the get out of jail free card. <laughs> <laughs> that was like my win. But it's it's just fascinating that your whole, you know, up until now at least, that even the setting and the context, it was almost like taking that Monopoly board and it, it kind of manifests into mm. reality. Mm. Um,
0: I did it. It felt like it. now that you talk about it like that. It does. It, it feels like it was um, burst into reality. Yeah. You know, it yeah. became this multi-dimensional playing field that was real.
1: I can see the animation now. So, <laughs> yeah, I know. We'll make and a movie
0: out of your podcast. <laughs> there we
1: go. It's also interesting because, I mean, you've chosen the name play. And, and, it's, and it really, for me, it, it, it sums you up on so many levels. It's, and it sums up exactly what you've just described. And we've, we've we've joked about this as well when we, you know, when you were trying to create the logo etc it actually got your initials in it
0: mm. um well I mean that is a curious thing because you remember because I always go to you you know for for those sorts of ideas about names and websites and that visual aspect that's more you know I wouldn't say it has it's multi-dimensional but it's you know on a platform that I don't need to be on social media and I don't need to have websites, whatever it is. I'm just, you know, I want to put my curiosity into the world and make it. But um, you're really good at at putting those things down on paper and getting a visual context for it so it becomes an easier message for other people. And I, you remember, you know, I, I think we, I had that shelf company, which you, you know, you, you, you kind of liked and I was like, yeah, whatever. I never really had an affinity to it. And I could never find up the name that was, this thing until I really kind of looked inward and started to start understanding, well, what actually is this message? Forget about what you're messaging to the world. What are the words that you need to use for yourself? The resonance. Yeah. And after years, it was going back exactly to the word that I first spoke about, but it was a generic term and it was almost impossible to get websites or anything linked or domain reserve or whatever. And and it was this idea of play. And I loved the philosophy at the time of like building up your email address that I could have something like Adam at play. Yeah. I mean, that's the most obvious thing that I could ever mess up as an idea of life.
1: Well, it also becomes your mantra in a way. Well, it is. And it's your reminder. So every day when you see this word, it's a, it's a reminder to do that. Whereas most people, and we all do this, we yeah. walk through life and we forget to laugh. We forget to play. I mean, yeah. I don't know what the statistics are of how many times a day kids laugh. But I know that I've often gone through many days where I go, I don't, I don't think I laughed today. Yeah. And and when, I, and when I do, it almost breaks the spell. And I go, it's like coming out of of some kind of container, you know, where you've been like, I suppose, um, what do you call it? Like in a (laughs) straitjacket, in a sense, and then you can breathe again or coming up for air. So I think that, you know, at least for me, and I know that it's it's a mirror of you, this word is a mirror Mm -hmm. of you. And it keeps it at the same time, it keeps testing you because if you kind of veer too far away from it, you have to reel yourself again okay, hang on, what did I intend here? And am I living, am I living this?
0: Yeah. Well, this is interesting because there are so many reasons to believe that I am living it because I know that all the time, you know, there's a universal flow about, and there's always some opportunity to create something magical, but there's always, it's not always just at play. And that's I suppose, you know, my 12-year-old self would have made sure that it only stayed Adam at play. But I've got the suffix that I carry, which is Adam at play, Bramfontein. Yes. So there's, you, you can't, it's not only ever about playing, although there's been so much play within my life in Bramfontein, there's also the challenge of responsibilities of, you know, all of the other complexities that come with operating in a city like this. And uh, it's not always just the play yes. aspect of it. But, I mean, I remember going through, a different brand people years ago and that was the thing that was most curious about it because it was like you know my middle name's paul's as you know adam paul levy <laughs> and i was going you know i still don't know why the paul's there you know me adam adam, adam, made, adam made sense to no, me i've never adam,
1: understood paul like, I, I know i know it's, we, it's, we must
0: ask we must, we must ask, ask mommy about know. that but but i, I say that because I, I never i really never knew why i was called by my name it was a weird curiosity for me. Even when I was little, I was going like, well, I could have been called anything. First. No, but then it like <laughs> yes. it started to make sense to me when I started to do the th- when I became when I started to live myself that this idea of Adam was the first and you know doing all the things that I was doing in the city was the first. I was the first person doing it at the time and all these other things and all well, it Levy. You? you know, it seems like there's a commonality behind the name and then you know naturally through Dan. And, you know, losing him and those sort of things is just kind of recognizing that there was this power of a name that I had to carry. And then, well, how does Paul fit into the whole thing? And and that finally dawned on me is this idea that the word play, which is so prevalent in my experience of life, when we jumbled up all the letters and it started to go, well, like Paul is really my initial it's, there's an A in there, there's a P in there, and there's an L Y, which is the Levian. And I was like, oh, wow. Paul is actually the the connection the between Adam yeah. and the Levi. Wow. It's like the connection of the whole name. It's like it all comes together. I was like, there was that was a it's real a legacy. Yes, you know, uh-huh. uh, Eureka moment. Yeah. Ah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, that is powerful, honestly, because something like that is is what you internalize and you carry and you you know and you share with other people. But it's it, it it's almost it's like your you're to, to holding it holds you you know so I, yeah that's why I brought it up because I think it is very powerful but you you mentioned something that also made me laugh um which I hadn't thought about in a long time so <laughs> if you don't know either of us um and you certainly and if you didn't know us when we were younger I was well we're both very conscientious now but I was particularly conscientious and um Adam would come to me at the very last minute to help him do his homework. And I would be busy and I'd go, you always come at the last minute. <laughs> and this and this became a thing. And it, shame, he can give you his impression on that now, but he would always grill me literally at the last minute when I had a moment of free time or no free time, but I could never not help him. And the funny thing is, no matter how last minute he was or you were for all of your um, assignments or tests or whatever it was. I mean, because this went on till th- through university to the point that you literally missed all your lectures. You charmed every receptionist there so that you didn't have to do your exam on time or hand in an assignment on time, and you'd literally be on the beach. So, And it's so interesting because you just weren't interested in what you were doing. And when you finally became passionate and had chosen instead of, you know, defaulting into something and chosen something that you wanted to do, um, you you kind of blossomed into, you became incredibly conscientious, driven, passionate to the point where I would often come to you and I'd be like lastminute.com, can you help me with this? So it was such an interesting, you know, almost like baton change often, but it does tell the tale of how when you're doing something that you just not cut out to do, even though it gave you a good basis, Mm -hmm. um, that when you did, you applied yourself 150%.
0: You know, the application is really like breathing. So if you've got good enough reason to be applied, you've got good enough reason to breathe through it. And I mean, again, I did law for the wrong reasons. I understand the the simplicity of, you know, the moral consciousness of it, you know, being able to distinguish right from wrong, but you don't have to go and spend six years at university and do your law articles to make that determination. It's quite a simple thing. You could teach it to a four-year-old kid. Hopefully people do teach that to four-year-old children today. But this idea that you know, to go and sit down there, and you remember clearly, because I talk about this idea, you know, when I went to do law articles and I sat down the first day and I opened up this dusty precedent book, literally was f- dusty because no one had opened in f- what seemed like 50 years. Harry
1: Potter dusty.
0: Basically. Yeah. A thick leather bound thing it was quite beautiful, actually, the structure of the book. And I opened this thing, I what I remember it so clearly, I fell asleep. And I only knew that I fell asleep because I woke up. Full of dust. <laughs> <laughs> going, and I'd imagine this is a weird thing. I'd, w- I'd woken up and I was sure that not only had the day passed by, but I felt like my whole life had passed by. And I looked at my watch and it was 10 past eight on the first Monday morning that I'd started. I'd been there for 10 minutes and I'd seen my future not working out well in a space that I didn't believe in.
1: Isn't that incredible? That no, that yeah, but that's
0: right. Yeah. It's like well, those are the sorts of things that you know that you're being gifted. But again, is you've got to have a conviction to, to recognize it. Definitely. And that's when been like awareness. those, I think, I think every, I hope that everybody has it. You know, I talk, I'm saying is I hope that everybody has a moment of, of Break- clarity. Yes. I'm not, I, I recognize fully from the way the world works or, or is, or the way the world is yeah. dysfunctional Right. is that most people do not take those moments, but I, I'm, certain that people are continuously gifted with those moments whether you action them or don't is on you but i still believe that that's why when i look at young kids when i look at when i speak at places and talk to people i always go like there is a very simple um lineage connectivity between your youthful curiosity and what i believe you, you know where your purpose is and those things, I suppose, vary and fluctuate, and all those things. Even now, like you know, and I was saying, even when we set up for this podcast, you know, to one of the guys early on, is that you, sometimes you know your success, you can become a victim of even your own successes. You can go, okay, you become so adept at all of these things, and I've had, in course of recent times, to think about this question long and hard, where you can carry on doing the things that you find great successes at, but whether you continually get the fulfillment in them and whether or not you still, what are the things that are the calling signs of your, of your intrigue in this life? And again, as mine always comes down to people, if I deconstruct the whole thing is that I want to just have an amazing experience through life, meeting interesting people. That's always been the thing that's been my underlying governance. And that got connected with my love of making things, you know, the design aspect, the architectural aspect, all the things that I didn't study in, but I learned through osmosis because I did it all the time. And I think that's why, you know, there's just, there's there, those are the moments when we have to just be marginally more insightful, a little bit more mindful, and most of all courageous because when they come, you need to find a way of uh, riding the coattails because they do ultimately take you to a much more fulfilling life
1: 100 percent. I, I think again growing up in our family environment you know uh, again adam and i our, our dad was i would say grew up in a very conservative um non-moneyed family um, very few opportunities he really put himself through law school um by doing a, a number of jobs um, et etc but he he made sure that he got something solid as a law degree, in my opinion, one of the most solid you know degrees to have as a foundation, which kind of spoke about which was possibly not not necessarily a reaction to, you know, but more of a necessity for not wanting the same um, experience that he had as a child who, because his father just didn't have stability. So he created enormous stability for us as a family and for children, gave us all the opportunities, and we all became, at least, you know, in degree names, professionals. But mm. with that, there was also the freedom whether he intended it or not, and I don't think he necessarily did. But because we all had our degrees at that point, we were all, when we when we started to become entrepreneurial, and, and we all are, which is so interesting, um, and, and there are four of us, as Adam mentioned, I have three brothers, um, is that we became the risk takers. So my father was actually pretty risk averse, and he, in a way, at some point in time, and you can kind of correct me if I'm wrong, lived A little bit vicariously, um, you know, as you were developing uh, play, or Daniel was starting his business or grant, and he was intrigued by, you know, what you were. Going through mm. versus you know kind of going to an office job every day. It's like what else was was out there. So I think that his solid foundation that he had established for himself and given us allowed us the freedom to then become risk takers, to become entrepreneurs, and to follow our own paths. And we weren't restricted. We were or we were certainly guided, I would say, and the, and we we knew we could always fall back on you know on this foundation, mm. but. I think that there was an incredible trust from our parents that allowed us to try things.
0: Definitely. Well, w- w- you know, it's interesting thing about it now because Dad was exactly like that. He was, he was so regimented and resolute and structured and focused, and it gave him enormous power. You know, but he he was he loved observing vicariously through what I was doing over there. But he also married mommy who's, you know, a fringe human who who's a total risk taker in her approach to creativity and approach to uh, applique everything. Everything about her is like fringe. And so maybe there was part of him that was also, you know. Drawn to that. hundred yes. percent he was drawn to that, even though he had, to, he had the pretense of this super structured guy. You know, he was methodical, meticulous, and, you know, every aspect about him was considered. And I always say that it, it is undeniable. If we didn't have that, then I don't think any of us would have become entrepreneurial. You know, that We are all products of where we come from. That This is yeah. uh, an undeniable truth. But I always, and right from the beginning, because I would talk about it all the time in the beginning, is going like the only reason I had the the I wouldn't say the fortitude because I had the fortitude. The only reason I had the courage mm-hmm. to go and say, okay, I'm a few months shy of getting qualified in his attorney. But, and I remember saying that to him and it was a very hurtful thing for him to hear, to go, well, so did you, you well, you've come this far. You've done your undergrad and your... Postgraduates, and you know, you've now almost finished your articles, and you've done your board exams. Like, Even just, though
1: you missed every lecture,
0: s- whatever. And <laughs> I was, I was lucky. I got lucky. Um, anyhow, it, is that I got to this point where I knew there was a moment. It was like that moment arrived, and I, as I said, I used that precedent book to go run around the neighborhood and knock on doors, and you know, when people were, you know, willing enough to hear me out. Maybe there was nothing else going on in their worlds in the city and they were only too happy that some young person was curious about it. You know, I said, can I get, can I, I've just been studying about precedents and rights of first refusals. You know, can I have a right of first refusal by a building? Uh, yeah, sure. Let's do that. Okay. And, but the the fact is I would firstly never have asked the question and I would never have leaped into that thing if I didn't believe that I had something to fall back on. And I didn't believe falling back in a degree was the thing that I needed or falling back mm. on a full qualification. Because they always used to say to me, we've well, got like six more months, sit it out and do it. And I go, well, I've secured this right in a property and it's going to lapse in two months. If I don't use this two months, I think my whole life is going to change. And I knew in that moment, I just don't know how, but I just knew in that moment that was my chance. That was my window. And I had to step through that door. And You know, and there was massive um, apprehension, I think, on his side, because you're going, well, like, you know, you support somebody and they go to this length and just you do this and you can come back to this thing and relook it in six months. But I was sure that in six months, the opportunity would have gone. It probably wouldn't have gone, but in my head, it was definitive. It was like, this is your, if you don't leap now, you're going to be reading dusty precedent books for the rest of your life. and there was something really terrifying about the prospect of doing something that I didn't love. You know, I could I could see it playing out in slow motion, the worst type of groundhog experience. You know, re, re, the repetitive aspect, I still hate repetition of anything today, but repeating something that you dislike so vehemently was too terrifying a task to go and even believe that I could make one more step in that direction. But I only could do it Knowing that, and I always used to make the analogy that it felt like I was in a boxing ring. You know, I was some little featherweight who was going out there and whoever I was going to take on, if I took a good old beating, I'd still have Muhammad Ali in my back corner. And I was like, you know, and that just gave me such courage. It gave me such um, conviction, fortitude. I took ownership of what I wanted to be. But I could only ever do that knowing that if I really did fall on my backside... You know, I'd be protected. And that, I suppose, even now, you know, there's, there's, there's a continual wonderment about this idea that parents can give children such um, elevated power. It, you know, maybe they don't even do it it's consciously. Empowered.
1: You, it's yeah, empowered. Yeah, it's just
0: that they, through their teachings and their behaviors and their practices, more than Confidence. anything is it just courage, yeah. you know, that you can get to a point where you can go, I'm ready. Like I've learned, I've got like samurai, you know, I, I now.
1: Wax on, I, wax I, off. You've done it. I,
0: I've, d- I've done enough of certain, like, and i had done nothing. Yes. But I, But I had, I'd paid attention to enough of what I'd needed to see in my life to be able to move forward knowing that Adam was about to birth himself into the world.
1: Right. It's beautiful. It's self-belief, actually, because going you know growing up all the time if if that is com- continuously reinforced in children this idea of self belief then eventually you can actually believe in yourself enough to to take the leap yeah e- whether, whether or not you have muhammad ali in the background or not sure. i think that just gave us an extra edge definitely um you know and you, you speak about this concept also of the benevolent dictator yeah Maybe you can just share, you know, th- that concept that dad kind of...
0: Well, he always used to fixate on certain aspects of things, you know, like all those little pointed notes that you just, you can talk about in summary of a person, that that's what he believed in. He believed that you should have an underlying overarching construct of benevolence, that it's not just you in this life, there are, whatever your actions are, there's a multiplicity of connectivity. There are other people in this world. And if you have any type of influence or power, you've got to do good by it. And, you you know, I suppose, you know, I saw a little meme the other day and I said, like, being South African should be on your CV because you're perpetually having to be unbelievably resilient because there are just so many challenges. There's so many. And it, it, it makes you operate in a different way. But we've had to also be reliant on aspects of some degree of vigilantism because it's almost necessary to function over here. You have to go, you know, you can't be beholden to a system that's broken unless you want to really feel the abject effect of it. You know, if if the city or the, uh, the national government's not going to be giving you power source, you need to find power sources of your own. So, you know, you can go, you can't get coal power sources, but if they were available, you wouldn't want to do them. So then you have to go, well, how do we do this in a better way? We'll go find solar things or we'll find smart ways of doing, you know, other aspects of conviction. For me, it was always going well because it was in the city. It was like, well, what happens if we planted trees? I know the city's not planting trees. What happens if we started to do this? And, you know, I started to do that 18 years ago. And my little neck of the woods in the city is probably the most green street, st- street line in, in all of joburg and you know or building a park and going like commandeering places that had just been abandoned by the city you know and I it's not like I didn't want to um, not ask permission you know I, I, I'm not a believer in, don't you know ask for forgiveness not permission and I asked for permission because I do things you know resolutely s- you have through a moral the process 100 exactly. percent, and there was never a variance from that so that was definitely the underlying construct of having if I if I'd if I'd taken anything away from all those years of doing law, it's just this idea of like, well, the certain things that are just and, and there was there was no gray area. There were things that were definitive. And if you applied yourself long enough, you could understand what was right and wrong. But now you're having to do things in a way that, you know, as I say, is beyond you. It's not good enough that I'm just planting a tree. There has to be a reason. There has to be a legacy. There has to be what are the sorts of things that you leave behind. And that's something that you know I think about all the time because my buildings are not, or, or the structures or the aspects of hospitality are not just about me or my business. They are about being purposeful for an entire generation of people, and they they about um, you know being these driving forces, these underlining canvases that allow people to have the best experience of each other and of themselves. And that's the sort of thing that's been so transformatively influ- influencing in the in the community and in the culture that's been created over there. And, you know, I always joke about the fact that, you know, Dad always used to say to us, is like every great city deserves a benevolent dictator. And I suppose I've always taken on that mantra and I've, I I still believe it to be true to this day that I operate like a benevolent dictator, which is why, for a couple of city blocks, you can feel like you you could be in the best experience of anywhere in the world, but you were getting a very firm South African experience, which was right. amazing
1: and I mean it's so evident because if I think about the, how you've how you've translated that into reality is you know firstly you've created a space that is a, a, a gem, a gem in an area, you know, that kind of if you had to take a bird's eye view from above, you wouldn't believe that this exists within the cluster of the surround, the surrounding chaos, I should say. But what, it, it, and that's why for you, the word or the label, I should say, property developer has never resonated because most property developers are all about profit, and all about let's put up a structure let's overdensify let's not worry about how it's going to impact you know the sewage system or parking or you know how it's going to strain the existing infrastructure in a sense or whose views are going to be cut off i mean it's generally a very selfish i would say and i mean i feel quite justified in this in many of the experiences uh, we we've we've had but or, or you know or how the city has changed even in in Cape Town um it's it's you know and how preservation and heritage has just been kind of sidelined but what you have done by creating these spaces is you you've never bashed anything down you've only ever preserved and enhanced mm-hmm. and added greenery at, at the same time but each space has been about creating a culture creating a a space for gathering for people to come together from all walks of life and you were kind of coming in was it just pre um democracy was it sorry it was no sorry it was 2003 3, three sorry mm. of course but we still live through all of that, right? So it was very much front of mind: is how do you how do you gather people for everybody so that everyone feels comfortable in one space? Yeah. Your market has certainly done that, um, and it continues to change all the time. Um, you know, and speaking of a benevolent dictator, the fact that you created this free artist colony initially—I mean, maybe that's such a great story of how that came to be—and you know how many artists as a result of that, we're then able to go on and, you know, became famous actually after after that experience. And they they literally knocked on your door and needed a space.
0: Mm. Well, I mean, listen, we, you, you've spoken about a few things over there, but I, I can talk to the idea of, you know, the, the property development thing and you know, it took me all these years to recognize it. You know, I I don't think I've ever been in that. Like, you know, I'm I suppose I'm in real estate, but I also believe that I'm very firmly in hospitality because I'm creating experiences all the time and that's so nuanced to my own experience because I'm always wherever I go in the world, I'm trying to have an amazing experience, but more than that, it comes back to this idea of humanity, of people. And I love Even when I first started up in Bramfontein, it was I started to be purposeful about who I brought into the space. And I only ever wanted to hang out with amazing creatives or people who were doing transformative things. And I started to populate the entire environment with them. It never crossed my mind, you know, for almost all of the time that I've been doing it about where the commercial aspect was. I mean, naturally, I've got a strong sense for all of those things, but it's never been. You're driving. Well, it's just Mm -hmm. not the thing that influences me. I mean, your people could say well, that's kind of idiotic, but I just believe that, and I, you know, I'm sure I'm not the first person to ever sit in the podcast and talk about the fact that if you follow your dreams, you know, the commercial aspect will follow you, you know, but, uh, but there's, there's evidence for it with almost everybody. And how is that possible? Because as you mentioned, you know, I was hardly present when I was studying my degrees, but I was ever present when I was doing what I'd chosen to do. Truthfully, mm. purposefully. And you, then everything just happens in a very different way. It's like literally two variant universes, and you're aware of both of them, but the one you really get to luxuriate and experience of. And all of these things have really been done because of my love of people. And when I just say that, I just, I, I love being around the energy and. Speaking to people and and getting new ideas and all these sorts of things have been the things that are just. I think that's kind of if I say anything about being pointed towards what I believe um, my my sympathetic resonances would be. That so the idea with the art thing is because you know, mommy's like an exceptional art collector and she's got an unbelievable eye and very firmly like has a visionary construct about her when it comes to all of those things, just being surrounded by and being curious You're like I used to get draped around with her, and the rest of you weren 't interested, but I would go and sit through auction houses or go to galleries because there was some part about it that I was super inquisitive about and it 's still to this very day and i 'll tell you maybe just now about some of the the more recent developments that are happening like literally in the last week or two, but one of the first things that I ever did over there was you know, by a building that was seven or eight stories high and speaking to a couple of friends of mine who were kind of in the art community and the art world and saying to them that they could have a space for free. And all they needed to do was to have a gallery exhibition every week. Well, not every week, it was every month. So they could do it on rotation. And it built up this very, very big art community because, you know, it was it was wonderful. Like, you, you wouldn't want to take a space in the company of contemporaries of yours who you enjoy for nothing. And mine was, well, you know, I can get a piece of artwork back on occasion, but I got so busy. Those were like the really early years where all these things were happening and the city was starting to, um, you know, I would say the city was starting to get a story because I think maybe a lot of, you know, people who are listening wouldn't have known that for the ensuing 10 years after democracy. So from 94 to 2003, whatever it is, everybody had left the city. So there was this major abandonment Mm. and all these major monumental structures had literally just been ignored and neglected and no one wanted to be there. And it it was also really a framework for a world that didn't exist anymore. So, you know, the Nats had handed over power in this um, kind of unified utopian South Africa, Rainbow Nation, all of these exceptional things. The whole world came and, and you know, paid homage to Mandela, who became the president in 94. I think it was, you know, the biggest collection of um, world leaders and, yes. and, you know, international dignitaries that I think had ever congregated anywhere in the world for any inauguration. And it felt like we were the epicenter of the planet. So, like, this kind of pariah world gotten birthed into, like, this – Rainbow Nation, as Desmond Tutu, you know, the late Archbishop mentioned and and spoke about so vehemently for so long. It's this, this idea of the wonderment of our commonality, and and we were going through this space where we had just had, you know, the Rugby World Cup, which we had won, and we won the African Cup of Nations, football, and all of these things were happening. It was just like we could go no, we we could do no wrong, yes, and everything just felt like wow, this this really is a universal consciousness of power and this place is just getting better and better every millisecond and I think everybody believed that but part of the city that aspect of the city because everybody had slowly started leaving it had left this big hole this abandonment you know we talk about this idea that it was you know this is the heart of any functional city and everybody had kind of left it you know these arteries had gone out all the way to vast decentralized areas and we had started to actually fragment as a as a populace so everybody was storytelling in their own silo but no one was telling all of our story together and that part kind of fascinated me and these are things that you can go well but I was very aware of it from day one like I was going where are we going wrong How, how does this not work and I happened to just find a way of going well all these opportunities started as just you know, intertwine. And there was this observation from me they're going, Well, you know, the first building, you know, 155 that I bought, which, you know, knocked in this old guy's then he was like he was done with the city. He had seen the city and its glory and his view and he had seen its massive demise of the environment. There wasn't a single person to be seen in Braunfantine. And and you know, which is why you could buy things for a song And I did in that moment. And I remember having that huge party upstairs for a couple of hundred people. And I put this little flyer in the lift, the one lift that worked. And it said that, you know, if you want to live an exceptional life, contact me. You know, I play, uh, and I had no real idea outside of the fact that I knew that at the party, there would be a lot of people who I knew I was friendly with or people that were interesting who I might want to hang out with and have an experience with. And I think the next day I got... I don't know if there were 300 people there. I'm not being funny. Anywhere from 50 to 100 emails to say, we saw your adverts and we would love to be part of this. And just remember that building's like floor to ceiling glass kind of modernist masterpiece that was right on the, the outskirts of the city, but overlooking the train track. And everyone talks about the, this idea of the wrong side of the train track, and it was for a long time. And they had just built the Mandela Bridge one or two years before. A lot of people had never just even had had this experience. They hadn't seen any of it. And I was going, who wouldn't want to live here? I mean, this is people, you know, overlook the Golden Gate Bridge and people overlook so many other, you know, environments or aspects of environment that are so inspiring, you know, telltale evidence of, you know, some magical moment in time, the Eiffel Tower would talk to this idea of you know the World Expo and whenever it was in the eighteen eighties, you know. And again, is that st- something that's so emblematically Parisian? So many of the people hated it at the time, right? And now, but an icon. but but you know these yes. things that it's a global icon now, and, and the same thing I was experiencing. I felt for the Mandela Bridge is that well, who wouldn't want to experience this? And I literally from that started to. I handpicked six people, you know, who were all in the arts and in the creative industries and, you know, sectionalized this building and turned a 10 story building into seven apartments, which is what, you know, I didn't think anyone would ever do it at the time. And no one's done it subsequently 20 years later because it's not the, the commercial thing to have done, but I knew it was the thing to be done to change the narrative of the evolution of that city. And I created this iconic space and, you know, that was really the birthing point because it got so much coverage about the fact that you can have, you know, a 700 square meter, one bedroomed apartment that had these astounding panoramic views of the city skyline, which people, every time somebody walked in there, they they couldn't believe that such a thing could even exist. That somebody could actually make such a thing or that, you know, you could have such amazing finishes and design construct and all these other things. And then that was, again, as I say, the, the beginning point of, populating all of the other subsequent buildings that I bought with exceptional talent, with amazing storytellers.
1: Right. So when you got 155, I mean, you were 25 years old, which is also amazing. Considering that you were new in the city, it was really just an old kind of old school club that really, you know, of property developers that were there initially, and you know they had their their kind of areas in in the city. I mean, obviously some were, were government, many buildings were government owned, but there really hadn't been something quite iconic, I would say, since the Carlton Centre at the time. Um, so you coming in and bringing one fifty five for to life was quite a thing, and on top of that, you yourself wanted to move into the city and I think that that was also unprecedented mm. because normally I mean prior to that, it was really just a commercial center it wasn 't really a residential hub i mean I would imagine that there certainly within the city centre itself, there were very um, low cost living spaces um, ponte I would imagine would be have been one of those, and I mean it had this enormous potential for that to become the thing and I mean, as we know, many developers who came either at the same time or subsequently try to do many of those things and they're not necessarily here to tell this tale, whereas you're still actually reimagining and reinventing and are going strong. So maybe you can just share with us what it was about you actually wanting to walk your talk and live in the spaces that you were creating versus them being, okay, I'll drive there in the morning, work, and then come home, which was generally the way we do things, you know, as the South African culture versus places like London or New York, which are completely 24-7, multifunctional, work, live, and play.
0: Well, mine was, um, as I say, it was all about, having experience having my own experience so you can talk about this idea of you know selflessness and or, you know, that construct but it really is maybe all birthed from some some selfish aspect i can't you know maybe that's the truth is that i felt a deficiency in my experience in johannesburg i you know even though it was a, a nice experience growing up in south africa in suburbia It just, it felt to me that the world was going to be too small. And it felt that my experience was going to be too restricted. And I felt that there were too many other tales to be told, too many other tales to be heard. And I wasn't getting enough of any of it. And that was the thing that really precipitated my need to go and travel. So when I finished, you know, the last law degree, I went and backpacked around the world. And and every time I was traveling, I could see, Peers, I could see people my same age who were experiencing the world in a fundamentally different way. They were walking to university, you know, and they had friends from different cultures and different walks of life and different cities and different parts of the world. The whole experience felt foreign, and I just thought, "How can we can't? Why aren't we experiencing something like this?" And I came back, and truthfully, I can say that at that time, Johannesburg never felt like home for me. It just didn't feel that the tale that I wanted to have, like the experience that I wanted to have in this life was going to be fulfilled there. And as I say, there was this wonderful synchronistic moment of doing law articles, of being in Brian of recognizing this thing that it it felt that everything that I'd seen had found their way home, that I could find this way that I could somehow be the proprietor of a world that didn't really exist yet, but I knew that that the seedlings were there. I knew that they were exceptional people. People always spoke about, well, Johannesburg not, might not be the most exceptional place in the world, but the people are amazing. These are things that you still hear to this day because people. That is that's our lingering truth, is that because of what it is, it makes people in a certain way, and I think there's so much pressure there that they're diamonds. You know, there's there's this human diamond, people who who are resilient and have a firmament and love other people and love the experience of other people, because that's where we got our greatest pleasures. And we couldn't go like, oh, there's a beautiful mountain or I'm going to go to the sea. Those things were never available for us. So we could only find those pleasures in people. And those were the things that started to become obvious to me that those were the things that always made my heart sing. And but I hadn't had the experience of people that might have lived in a township or people that might have worked in the city or any of these other things that I, my my experience would have been severely restricted to you know, our neighborhood or the people that we would have gone to school with or some of the friends that I'd made at university. And I just knew that there was a much bigger story to be told and there were so many more people from different variants of experiences that I needed to hear, I needed to listen to. And that became this kind of overriding sense. It wasn't just, that became a very natural element. So when you talk about 155, it wasn't just so I could find some, you know, I didn't see it as, well, here's an opportunity to take a building, sectionalize it and make a lot of money. That wasn't the reason I did it. I was like, well, here is an amazing building with these incredible views. And what happens if you could actually live in a place like this? What happens if, there was a bakery across the road and there was an artist colony three minutes away and there was a theater up the road and you know there were bars and restaurants and markets and all these amazing things that you could walk to like people do in London or Paris or Tokyo or anywhere else for that matter. And that was what was happening in my head and it became very real for me very quickly because at the time, the city was uncertain of itself and the the national government and local government didn't really have a narrative because they didn't know what was happening either they were really almost reliant on commercial enterprise and you know entrepreneurial people or you know business really to start to drive the narrative that they wanted to have uh, with their own kind of direction and you know that the story people just were excited and I spoke about this the other day to friends of mine we went for dinner and. This idea that there was such there was such a novelty about it because everybody had the same curiosity because no one was living in the city now the the aspects of the city like Hillbrow which used to be you know operated with great fanfare and tons of people lived there you know in the 1960s and 70s but that was a white South Africa that lived there so there was this curiosity from a black South Africa that might not have experience things in the same way. And it was this idea of going, well, there are all these variant pockets of humanity who've all had very variant experiences of life. How could you get the best storytellers of each one of them into a space where we could use this environment as, you know, a a megaphone to tell the tale of the best of what each of us was and that if we could all hear that, if we could rub shoulders with one another for people that we might not have had the experience of meeting with before, we could hear the other story, you know, and we could, we could have resonance with the other story and we could, we could be, um, we could have empathy with the other story and we could really connect we could be the things that our politicians were telling us. We could be the rainbow nation. We could be this world of exceptionalism because the South African story hadn't really been told. And I was just really aware of all of these things. And this kind of wonderful symbiotic no- nature of how this whole thing started playing out was we were getting, you know, tons of local press just from like one building. And then the next thing, when I open up the little bakery across the road and the artist type that I opened, you know, and doing one or two of the bars, all of a sudden we were in local and then international publications every five minutes it seemed like because the world wanted us to be a good story. You know, the world almost needed us as this hopeful, utopian beacon, beacon of, of like amazingness, you know, out of the dark and come the light.
1: Absolutely. I think also – um What's amazing, you know, if one actually thinks about it more academically now, is that your approach was completely apolitical. And yet you were able to bring about what politicians only dream of. And that's about how do you bring all these people together from different economic backgrounds, different educational backgrounds, uh, physical upbringings, etc., into a place where they can all connect and talk to each other. And really what it was, like the magic formula, if you think about it, wasn't so much about um, making something pretty, although, you know, that's definitely an attractor. It was about creating a safe space and a space where it became a hub, a hub of activity. Mm-hmm. So everyone was equal, you know, and what you also did, and, and what I often say about things that I do, is my currency is opportunity. And I think that that's something that we we both resonate with very much. It's not about, you know, if someone wins a prize, do you give them money? Well, you can, but they might not know how to use it. They might squander it. They might um, be too scared of it, all these things. But actually, if you open up opportunity for them and empower them, that's a whole different ballgame. It's, like the, the, it's like the analogy of the, you know, taking someone... Teaching someone how to fish or
0: mm.
1: catching a fish on their behalf, so and I think that that's what you did so almost naturally, I would say, because that's how you operate. And you just, as you say, you provided a place that you wanted to go to, and knowing that you wanted to go, and that's often my litmus test as well. Creating spaces and 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 activities that I that I want to engage with directly, and then I know if I get that feeling. I know others will feel it as wow. well. And so you've done that on repeat. I mean, that is a winning formula of yours for sure. Um, you know, you've done it with the market, you've done it with the Alex Theatre uh, and so many others. And 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 it, what's so interesting about that is that they're all completely different and yet you've almost taken like a, what would you call it, like a, a blanket, you know, where you've got these patches and they're all different. But when you, it's like a patchwork and you patch it all together, it oh, it creates a blanket and it's actually functional and it actually looks beautiful as well. You know, you can wrap it around you or you can wear it. it it's like, and, and you've done that and you've created our local Soho in a sense um, and given it an African flavor, but at the same time, it's attracted enormous international interest as well. And so...
0: So I never gave it a flavor. I just... You gave the canvas. I, well, I I allowed the space for the natural story to flourish because I focused on the the commonality of our humanity. So that, was the, the, that continues, as I say. I mean, that is the thing that I think about first before I think about what, how I, what I'm going to put into this building or how am I going to redevelop this space or what's the offering that's going to happen. I think about the people that are going to actually be experiencing this all and... It is, it's about, at that time it was about, well, a lot of people wouldn't have had mentorship or leadership or guidance or governance or any one of these things. The best of, often the best of what we are comes from what we hear, what we see. It teaches us patterning about how we should behave ourselves, which is why maybe people listen to podcasts to get, you know, something to spark in their minds or an influence of something, or maybe the penny drops in a different way because they hear the story being told in a different way way. But you know, ultimately we're talking about the labyrinth of humanity. What are the things that make us tick? What are the things that get us out of bed in the morning? What are the things that make us smile the most? You know, where do we get those luxuries because those are the great pleasures of living? And you know, I've just been able to do it in a way, but I've done it in a way that I believe is worth this deep-down resonance of sincerity. The conviction comes from me. Like, this is the world that I would love to live in. And I believe that other people would want to experience it in a similar way if they see it in a similar way. Right. And that's what I provide. Right.
1: Well, I think the fact that they have come, built it, and yeah. they will come is, like is is evidence of that. And and again, what's really interesting is that, you know, this term, this property de- ter- term that... um
0: I Feels. can't get it out of my mouth either.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we have like a speech defect when we say that. Um, that clearly doesn't resonate with us. Is because most property developers, you see their names on a billboard and you never know who they are or see from them. So it's so easy to create, or, or I'd say not even create, but to, to to build something and hide behind something. And never to reveal yourself, you know, because the purpose of it is just something that is almost not alive. Mm. Um, Whereas something that what you've done is you've been the man on the street. You literally are walking around. The car guards know you. The shop owners know you. You know the tenants. You so you are you are that that semblance of a leader that is walking around and checking in. And you're like, uh, what would we call you? Postman Pat, but I mean, you know, <laughs> it's like you, you're there and you you like the friendly face in the area. And I think that that also gives people a lot of, um, I'd say, just knowing that, that that's happening and f- that you're checking in all the time and that things are working. They know they can approach you highly approachable. And what we've also often chatted about, often where cities become crime infested or spaces is when they turn their back on the city or they close up their shop fronts. You know, banks do that all the time for in inverted commerce security purposes. So they'll put a marble wall up or a solid wall, no windows looking out. And really what it just does is it, 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 it furthers the divide. Whereas if you have people walking past and you have some kind of visual interest into the spaces at street level, you're creating an exchange mm-hmm. and you're creating, you're allowing conversation to happen. And you've completely done that. You've taken spaces that turned their back and you've opened them out, which for me is very much an extension of who you are. So even in that expression you have created a space that has then ticked off one of the things that you've wanted to do on such a big level, which is how do we connect with people? You've you've physically made that manifest.
0: Thank you. Well, you know, part of this is that you know, I I wasn't I didn't want to protect people from each other. I wanted to give people an opportunity to engage with one another. So mine was the antithesis of how a bank functions. It's like Well, there'd be insanity if we were keeping people away from the magic, you know? And that's why I remember speaking about this probably when I bought the Alex Theater, which was almost 15 years ago now. Wow, that's a long time ago. It's more than that. Anyhow, and part of the idea was like, if you looked at a map, like a high level map of the city and a city almost in demise, because it was, it was abandoned and it was just, Lackluster, And there was really, there was no novelty or innovation. There wasn't a breath of life and it didn't feel like to me. And I just thought the Alex Theatre needs to be this resonance of light. When you look at this thing, this beam of light that is so bright and illuminating that it will be the thing that draws people into the space. And as I say, when I I did the theatre, I didn't think that, well, I was going to become, you know, this great proprietor of the theater world. or uh, That wasn't something that I had resonance with. Naturally, I'd traveled and I'd been to tons of theater and I loved the experience of being there, but I thought here was a wonderful opportunity to bring hundreds of people back into the city. And if they did it with enough regularity and they had enough of a good experience with enough regularity, they would start to change their own narrative in their minds. And that was another thing that you know, I haven't really touched on is this idea that, well, you, how do you explain the ensuing 10 or 15 years in advance of me starting to play around in the city was that the entire narrative from everybody, mainstream media was all about this idea that it was negative, crime-ridden, that it just defaulted into like a no-go zone. And even though people hadn't really experienced it because no, no one really had a reason to go there, they believed it. Yes. And that was something that it took 10, 20, 30, 40 visits to the environment to start to subliminally adjust people's mindsets.
1: And 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 make their own opinion.
0: To give them a reason to make their own opinion. Right, right. Which is much more, has a much greater depth of resonance when it is a hearty, beautiful story of wonderment. When it is that light of illumination. Yes. And people want to tell everybody. And it became because they kept on coming out there and experiencing my buildings and my spaces and having this amazing experience and almost always meeting unbelievable people from different walks of life. It became like this phenomenal marketing machine where inadvertently, so to- totally inadvertently. Right? Right. And you know, there was a, this, wasn't a, a penny spent on marketing and became this viral chat. Where people just wanted to tell their story, and the best of their own story had a home base almost at the time and and people started talking about the exceptionalism of what it meant to be south african brafontine
1: right here 's the, the the short thing that I want to quote, you say, the great luxury of my life is that I walk through my imagination every day. So I get to imagine things, I get to create them, I get to build them, I get to activate them and make them happen. In my line of thinking, I don't think there's a greater gift you can have in life than to be able to turn your imagination into reality everyone can enjoy. And it ties in so well with the Alex because do you remember that you were standing outside before you had revamped it and you mm. you, you looked at this building, which really is a beautiful, iconic.
0: Modernist master. Modernist
1: thing in the middle of,
0: mm.
1: you know, quite a bit of messiness. And you, you said something along the lines of soon people are going to come here and they're going to say, um, they're going to stand exactly here and they're going to say, this reminds me of being on Broadway.
0: Mm. I remember clearly, like, yeah. I mean, sorry. Uh, this, yes. Well, you know, as I say, I, I would walk from my offices to the, the bottom part. Of Brian, and, and again, is my curiosity for Brian Fentine was birthed out of the fact that I didn't want to be in the office. So like, I used any excuse. I, I basically was Postman Pat. you know, oh, you need somebody to deliver something, or collect something. I'm in. Let's go. I need to get out of this, you know, this place. It, it felt holes. like there were, you know, air conditioned, vent, like non vented spaces. The windows didn't open. It just felt so restrictive on every aspect of me. And I always walked past the Alex Theatre and I always popped my head in. And it was such a, an enchanting building. It is, and it had been derelict for like 12 or 13 years. And, and there was just, you know, the, the Jeremiah and Julius, who were the caretakers, ostensibly the custodians of these things. And you know, Julius is since passed you know, a the fantastic human being who I love dearly. It worked there for like 40 years, and this became his home. And he said he was, he was so fatigued from basically becoming the security guard that's of a, a dead space. Yeah, like he would sit outside this building for over a decade every day, like protecting it from nothing. When it was the same thing, he had the same ethos. It's about this thing needs to come to life. It needs, there needs to be a magic in here you because like I've seen a magic happen here before. And I remember when I, 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 so I bought the building and all of a sudden I was in the theater world. You know, I didn't, I was like, okay, wow, that's amazing. I'm now like a proprietor of theatrical performances, you know, I I knew nothing about any of this stuff. But I do remember clearly that there was a little parking space outside the building and I knew that that needed to be grander. Like it needed to be a welcome space because that's how I'd experienced it in Broadway, you know, and and I and I remember making a submission standing out there and I remember we were measuring and said these parking bays are gonna get removed and there's gonna be a kind of an entrance thing here with gold, beautiful like a wreck, stanchions.
1: Like a rope
0: in a- the stanchions will be outside over here and all these dotted, kind of illuminated bulbs which had all broken, been removed where well, no one even knew that they were still there. Like yes, you know, the theater yes, lights. Yes. And I just said, Somebody is gonna stand out here. Everybody is going to stand out here. And on opening night, they're going to turn around to each other and they're going to go, I feel like I'm in the middle of Broadway. And I remember a very lengthy story to get there, but on the opening night, you know, which had opened to amazing fanfare because people just wanted to hear the story. People yes. wanted to know that their city was coming back to life. And at the time, you know, I was the person doing it. I was I was the, the Pied Piper maybe. And and I remember it was um, George Bizos, who, you know, who was a, a famed um, legal oh, yeah. uh, mind and, and esteemed kind of um, with fellow Mandela. The, with yeah. Mandela. And he was there with his wife. And I remember standing shoulder to shoulder with him, and he hadn't seen me yet. I, I hadn't even met him personally. And he was talking to his wife. And he said, wow, I feel like I'm in the middle of Broadway. And it was literally like in that mo- those are the moments you just go, wow. This is the only affirmation that you need in this life is that, you know, you could master up a thing in your head and you could literally bring it to the people. It was hugely empowering, that thing, because it was like those. that was the beginning point of just some of these acknowledgements. You're going, well, if you build it and you believe it, then hopefully they will come. And when they do, you go, wow, I should carry on doing this.
1: 100%. I also think what's very powerful about that is that it was someone who had once experienced, you know, how old Joburg in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's often hard, you know, once people have experienced something and then you recreate it or renew it, it never has the same feeling. Mm -hmm. But you actually did create it in a style that was respectful of what had come before. And in that way, you both drew the old, you know, patrons, and you then brought in new patrons. And the best way that that actually happened, which was also so remarkable, is the next minute you literally had um, rent the, the the Broadway show rent uh, rent the space. <laughs> And perform there. I mean, you had one of the original actors in the in the movie Rent. Um, he was, wasn't he the, the director at the time? Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, I think about the whole story is that w- w- there's a there was, there's always been a massive nostalgia about the city. But part of the nostalgia has been that it's also fragmented the storyteller because a lot of the people who would have experienced the city would have been a certain demographic, and a lot of people that didn't experience it in a very different way. So when I opened up the Alex Theatre, I would have – it's amazing. I was going through some files the other day, and I found people wrote me hundreds of letters to say that they'd met their wives there, their husbands, or they were ushers, or they were, you know, s- storytelling from a, from a bygone life that didn't exist. And, and this is the thing that I, I speak about often now in, in thinking about this next iteration of Fantine and about how to transform or influence part of our community talk is this idea of having resonance with where we come from and you know even if some parts of it are difficult to digest they're important to speak about so we can enhance ourselves Mm -hmm. and Johannesburg has got an unbelievable tale in the musical world in the jazz world we produce some of you know some of the world's global stars and yet There's nothing that is in evidence now. There will be soon. (laughs) But there's nothing of evidence of it now that tells the tale of where we've been. And it's so vitally important. You know, the Alex Theatre was a a wonderful connector of people who had experienced theatre in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And, you know, when South Africa had acclaimed performers and they were global stars and theatre was a massive part of a social narrative. That was the medium. And when I bought the Alex Theatre, it basically coincided with a time when South Africans basically gave up on theatre. I, I wasn't aware that this kind of, this this movement had started and I was basically starting the theatre world a at a moment at its at a lowest tier. And I think what happened then was I had to be massively um, entrepreneurial or enterprising to think about how I could then use this building to tell a different tale for maybe a different people or different. And it was, and the different people were a group of young people from different walks of life. And I used that as the medium to get everybody connected to start to tell a new narrative in a building that had history. So I, the history of these guys is the history of everybody. Yeah. It's the history of the building. It's the history of theater. It's the history of our story. And all of a sudden there were massive parties and events and it became so multidimensional and hugely variant that it, it touched you know, t- probably millions of people's of lives through the time that it was you know, operational that way. But it was also the birth point of getting huge volumes of people back into the city and that was the beginning point of allowing me to do all the things that I, that I then Absolutely. started to do subsequent yeah. to that, which started to really build out this idea that it wasn't just a single storyteller, you know. Or a single the, building. Or a single building. There were There were lots of people telling the same tale about how they were experiencing the city in an amazing way. And that became a very, very powerful tool for change. And that's when the city started to pay more attention. Unfortunately, it also coincided with the city again. It's this idea of South Africans and our, our resilience. This coincided with the time of our city, really, uh, you know, a national government in demise. All these challenging things that su- subsequently started to happen with South Africa and how it became so much more complicated to do things that were exceptional for everybody because our political framework then started to fixate on this idea of difference. And not on commonality. Right. And the newer leadership started to tell a tale that was much more in the service of them than it was in the service of the people.
1: Exactly. And I and I and I think that that's such an important point that you make in terms of the challenges that you face. Because it's one thing when you kind of have come into a space with potential, you know, and knowing that you are this, you have this vision, you have a blank canvas, you have access to a building or two, you can implement your vision, you know, and you start to see it starting to happen. And as you say, it it gets local attention, it gets international attention, you're bringing different demographics together, there's, there's, there's a, there's a hive of activity, there's positivity and everything else surrounding that at that time was reinforcing all of that. So, you know, it's it's like what we always talk about, the law of attraction and how it just it's exponential. Mm. But at the same time, when those forces that are greater than all of that, then kind of dampen all mm. of that, what is the ripple effect that then starts to have on, on the, on the on the country, you know, on on how on people's sentiment, on investment, um, and in your own personal lives, and so you've had to. I mean, talk about resilience. I, I honestly think that you're sometimes made of steel, because you've had to knowing that you've like built this. You know, you, you've like you flowed with the wave. And then to suddenly have this wave like crash and then try and navigate your way around that and rebuild in a, at a time and in a space where a lot of people would have gone, I've had enough, mm-hmm. you know, like this is just too hard. Like I'm trying to work with the city and they won't even let me plant a tree. You know, like you're actually trying to beautify, enhance and, and make things better. Um, so how, how would you say those challenges or have you have you, I don't know, a combination of anticipated them? A combination of um, you, they've been they've been in such contrast to what you tried to do, a as an individual and b for a greater community, um, and still keep your vision alive and going in the face of such, in a way, like obstruction.
0: Maybe it's because I don't know another way. I mean. Let's just talk to the fact of how that actually happened in the city. So we had, you know, this exceptional wave that lasted for 10 years and every everything was like working in the favor of this transformative story. And everyone wanted to hear the same hymn. They wanted to hear, well, this is we, we want to sing to this tune. And then we had, you know, a lot of strife that started to come into the South African story, you know, and it was really precipitated. I think it was the end of 2015 when we had the the Zuma riots and the Fees must Fall riots at the university and the university is very close um, to Bramfontein where students started to commandeer the story and it got violence in the streets. And this is not something that's new to the South African story. You know, we had Sharpeville in 61. We had uh, Soweto riots in 76. And it felt like this was our new tale, like this thing was happening. And there was people just didn't know how to deal with it. And I remember there was a big banner headline news because I remember a bus got burnt. You know, it was like 10 city blocks away, whatever it was. But because Bromfantine was this quirky, sexy little, Place it, it, it was a very easy target for a media writer to get some publicity for their tale. And the headline was, Bramfontein is burning. And I remember reading this thing going, holy shit, this, this, is, this is a challenge. Because our entire story was premised on the human story. And that was all being told by people. People were telling everybody about how exceptional it was to be in Bramfontein. I wasn't using social media or bots or spam or anything. I wasn't doing paid media posts. You know, the only people who were writing about it were the people who they were forced to write about it because their constituents wanted to hear about it. Mm. And now all of a sudden there was this bigger political play and it wasn't something that we could be in the countenance of because I didn't even know how to play the PR spin world. I don't know how to play that world. I'm not the least bit curious to it because I don't care for it. But I know that that's the world we live in today. And I started to notice that, you know, fewer people started coming in. It started like this kind of demise of the construct of what it meant to be this magical unified people, which we, which Bronfenstein was so emblematic of. That, that story started a shift because – mainstream media was telling a story that was much more negative and it played into this kind of ambience of paranoia Mm. and every time I would see somebody or speak to somebody instead of me going like well this is the most amazing new thing that's happened or we've got this brilliant new artist doing something or this brilliant industrial designer or this theater production or this market thing everything was like that it'd been like that for a decade I was going like you know is it safe to come back into the city is it safe to come back into the city which is exactly the narrative i was actually dealing with when i started in the beginning yes so it was like wow you, you guys are f- you're pulling me back you're pulling this whole thing back into a world that doesn't have to exist because we've transcended that already yes you and i've got i got so honestly for me personally i got so fatiguing because because it's negative the whole conversation piece of it is negative and I didn't want to have that all of my time was which had now been a hundred percent of creativity, nuanced brilliance, surrounded by people.
1: F- you you encouraged that and e- everything. Yeah.
0: Everybody was feeding into this idea that we were gonna change the world. That this was gonna be a part of the South African story that the world wanted to hear. Yeah. And like
1: that handbrake. you could come
0: to us one yeah. place and you could see and be and experience the very best of everything that we are. And then this happened, mm. you know, and then it was just compounded by this. There were, there were so many different political issues. And, you know, I think a finance minister got fired like a year later and like the Iran just tanked and it was just doom and gloom, you know, which is, and this is the thing that we vacillate with as a culture in South Africa, you know, is it going to get better? Is it going to get worse? Like there's always this perpetual vacillation about what our movement's going to be. Because it's hard to set up a future that you're so uncertain of. And I think this is the thing that, you know, as you know, personally with me, is, is the thing that troubles me the most, I suppose, is because you want to, you know, when you're building buildings and you're making things, these are things that are, they outlive all of us. What goes on in them can be influenced, but the actual structures and a lot of what its purpose is, you know, you, you can go, you know, I know that in San. Whereas in LA, I think they recently transformed a theater into like the Apple store. You know, that, like those things can happen mm. where it, it transitions and a, and a culture starts to change in a different way because the whole narrative of the culture and has And it sustains
1: changed. over a long period but, of time.
0: Yeah, you know, we, we haven't ever had that measured sustainability. Like, and maybe that's what makes us so malleable and adaptable. But in the same way we open to goodness, I suppose we are receptors of bad too. And that's the thing that troubles me about how you start to create space that can start to influence the beauty again. And I think for many years it started I just the whole city was getting so harmed by politicians really. Yeah. That we just – You couldn't – it was all like this – well, it was less about like one-on-one hearsay, it was more about like mainstream media controlling the narrative. Yes. And, and that became so fatiguing to the point that I literally just like kind of took some time out. what <laughs> my, what my time I necessitated me like literally tapping out. And yeah. although my business was running and the neighborhood was running, I let that story just kind of go unguided. So it wasn't – I didn't have the same sense of curation and not to say that it was evidenced in the people that would have gone there, but I, I went and started to explore the world again. Right, I went back to the core of what it was to make me happy and get the satisfaction that I could tell a story that that didn't warrant having to explain someone else's, you know, misdeed, or someone else's break, like. Like, I didn't break it. I don't know why I should always have to be the guy fixing it. Right,
1: which makes complete sense. I mean, why wouldn't you be fatigued after putting all your time, love, and energy into something that then, you know, gets sideswiped for without even having come to the party, in a sense. And so, you know, you definitely did lose your mojo over that time and kind of like there was a bit of resignation. Um. And it's like a relationship, you know, it was like a breakup in a way or a pause of not mm. knowing where it's going to go and what the mm. future is going to hold and, and trying to grapple with that in your mind. And at the same time, almost having to, not that there was ever any authenticity around this, but there was a front that one has to keep up in the sense that this is still going, you know, mm. this is still going, but I just feel like tapping out right now. And culture and society doesn't allow us to do that anyway, even in our personal lives, you know, you have to kind of show up. And I mean, also 10 years is a long time to put into something where you are, I mean, you certainly initially started as a lone ranger, swimming Mm -hmm. upstream, 25 year old, you know, law student. I mean, the only kind of affiliation you had to the building world was the fact that, you know, in our family, you know, they're architects. So so it's osmotic and it's just something that we all resonate with. And I think that um, in a way, looking back now, it it actually makes complete sense that you needed to tap out, like for your own Mm self-preservation. And what you did also makes sense in the, in from the point of view that what initially got you to the point of starting something in Bramfontein in the first place and that is travel being inspired by things that are happening around you because even in Cape Town like you know you and I have this conversation often is that there's so many players in the area of of regeneration and beautifying spaces or attracting new audience or coming up with new niche ideas and it's very contagious. So it actually spreads quicker and faster. And as a result of that, it is more sustainable because there are more people ensuring that it sustains itself. Mm. Even though, you know, Cape Town has dipped and it's certainly, you know, it's 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 finding its way again post COVID. But I think my point being is that very hard in a space where you constantly the driver, where there is no Muhammad Ali in the back, mm. in a sense, on so many levels. And so to escape from that and to go and find, to, to kind of regroup is what you had to do in order to come back. And the funny thing is that, you know, you, you kind of started to do that and then COVID came in as well. So it was almost like the second or third iteration of what you were doing where something of your type of intervention in anywhere else in the world would have just grown and grown and grown and continue to transform. But you've had to do it as a result of challenges being thrown at you constantly.
0: Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's a a a debilitating construct, this idea that you have to reinvent the same thing. Now, I never went into this thing to reinvent anything. I went there because I wanted to have a different experience. And I kind of got a very good sense of it early on what that where that enhancement needed to come from. And it needed to come from you know, the exceptionalism of other people. I needed to be able to be in the company of people who wanted to change the world for the better. And I needed to be inspired. And then all of a sudden, I became like the expert in the field that had never existed there in the city before. But so many other variant nuances that made it I couldn't really even get this information from somebody who might have, you know, done the meatpacking district or any one of the other notable places in the world where there's, you know.
1: Historically, it exists already.
0: Yeah. Well, there's a history about – there's also a history about functionality. There's almost no place in the world that just stopped the world and then the next day it had to be a different world. That's what happened in South Africa. And we forget about this fact that – and that's why I was always intrigued where – right, in the early years, it seemed like every second publication that I was doing was a German publication. I was like, why are the Germans so curious about what our story is? And I realized, it finally dawned on me after so many of these things that, you know, Germany had gone post-World War. They'd gone post-Cold War. You know, there was this East and West side of very variant cultures that had grown up with very different narratives. And they were finding a way of piecing themselves together Mm -hmm. as a democratic, unified new country. And there was so much similarity in what we were doing in a different way, right? It was like, this is how part of South Africa worked, and this is how the other part of South Africa worked. And we were trying to, and no one was doing it in a practical, rational way. You know, it was also like, it was also... um,
1: Like winging it. We were... Everybody, organic, listen, yes.
0: everybody's winging life. That's how it works. Right. <laughs> we could say whatever we like about it. But there was this idea that we needed a government to tell us how to make this thing work, like the worst of the system, the worst of the bureaucratic dysfunction to tell us how we actually need to behave with one another. And I think that happened when, you know, when I opened up the market, certainly, and it became this where you could start. I thought it would happen with the theater, but The theater wasn't theaters that I hope we would get like a matinee in the day and we'd get an evening session. There would be a 1,000 people there. It was like, well, we were doing a party or an event twice a week, you know, for different types of people. So it was just, it wasn't, it didn't have the same. um, Momentum. It didn't have the momentum and it didn't have the volumes. And then I opened the market and it was like, okay, hello, there are 4,000 people coming here every single Saturday. And all of a sudden that starts to become an exponential force of powerful marketing where people are going, wow, there's this unbelievable offering there and there are 50 of these other things happening around. And right. you can go there and you can meet and see and you can experience a South Africa that you can only ever dream of. And that was a South Africa from everywhere. And that was the power. And so we get back to this idea of, you know, having all of this and the feeling, you know, when I talk about it, there's there's like a, there's such a, it's not a sense of, pride there's a sense of satisfaction that you are living your truth and that's what it felt like every minute of every day I didn't I I promise you for 10 12 however many years 15 years there wasn't a single day of work I would walk outside and my tenants were my friends you know the people who were doing events with friends everybody was my friend it just felt like this was like having you know people over for dinner the market was like wow, I get to, to host, you know, a couple of hundred of my favorite people every weekend. And they're coming to you. Yeah. It's like it didn't, you know, and and you don't need, and it's not work. And it's. None of it was work. It wasn't serendip- any part of it. Yeah. It's just. It was, there was a. Spontaneous. A, there was a real proper wonderment about it. And then, as I say, all this hardship and everything, whatever it is, and it's the same thing because it seems to happen in cycles in South Africa mm. where everything's unbelievable and then everything's the worst of it. And we live through these unbelievable extremities. Mm much more than most other conventional places because there's an established base. So their variance is just marginal. You know, it might go up 3%, it might go down 5%, it might go up 6%. We were working in cycles of what felt felt like we're 100% up, we're 100% down. Mm. You know, and it was just, it's too radical. It's too radical for humanity to actually, it's too intense. Yeah, You don't know where you stand. You don't know which side of the day it is. And, you know, and then again, it was this escapism to... To what I thought was to ready myself for a different tale, to take all this power and experience and know how, and to do it maybe somewhere else where it wasn't, when I wasn't having to expend any part of my day explaining other people's faults. You know, I'm happy to explain mine all day, but I, I don't need to expend all of my energy explaining why the city hasn't done X, Y, and Z. You ask the city. I'm not the mayor. If you want to make me the mayor, then I'll be accountable. Right. And And, you know, as I say, opening up all of these doors, and this is the the fascinating thing about it because I'd I'd come back, I'd opened up all these doors and I'd come back, I think, two or three weeks before COVID started to sell, you know, one of my major buildings and to let go. Right. Because I thought it was time to let go. Like maybe I was done with Joburg and I was done with South Africa. Maybe the story needed to take me somewhere else where I could have the same curiosity Without the heaviness, yeah. without the responsibility, without the burden. Because it comes with all of those things when you become like a proprietor of some degree of seniority and you're the only person doing something and you're the only person who's still around doing these yes. stories, you know? Very it's like, hard. Let's go to this person. He seems to be like sturdy as steel, maybe, whatever it is. And and then that, that kind of happened, the whole world shut down and I think I, I finally it finally, finally dawned in me that ideas are not to be fermented in the mind only. You cannot be the proprietor of ideas exclusively. You have to actually make them. And, and that's, that's some part of me, whatever it is during COVID, that was like a birth of a new Adam, like a new conviction. And it happened to be that I was locked down in Johannesburg like the last place in the world that I ever would have thought, having travelled the world for three years before, that this moment had re-arrived it was like, well, this is now seventeen or eighteen years later, the same thing is almost happening again, but this time it's happening with all of the knowing, with all of the understanding, with all of the wisdom, wisdom, with the with the experience, with you know, and that you could find a way of really, really accelerating excellence and that's what I feel like this rebirth of my life in Johannesburg is starting to feel like you know it's been you know maybe post I, I hope we live in a world of post-covid now but you know for the last six or eight months there have been some seriously transformative things that are happening and I, and I truly believe that it's the beginning point of a whole new narrative that's going to be a global story again
1: I mean that's really exciting to know that you know because it's almost like the phoenix rising in a way and 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 having you know a new vision having to to pivot which covid has mm. you know demanded of everybody and if you couldn't do it before you weren't really um engineered that way then Boy oh boy, you're going to have to learn really quickly. So the fact that I think you've, you've had like so many opportunities to pivot along the way has put you in a masterful position to actually be ahead of that and go. Not only you know, am I ahead of it, but I actually know what I want to do already. And there's there's a new um, there's a new something new is presenting itself and and, mm. and and you know, a new story, how am I going to interpret that in my way? And 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 what is my new offering? And in a strange way, you know, obviously in the good old days, people would have the same job forever and then they'd retire and get a gold watch. And we know that has that all changed very rapidly over the last, I don't know, you know, people becoming much more entrepreneurial and now obviously with this kind of remote working experience that predated COVID, you know, of people traveling and working remotely. So I think that there's a a lot more like malleability in how people approach things anyway, and and a lot more less permanent in a sense. So you talk about letting go and maybe that's in a way, the new way of thinking is non-attachment. How do we still create but are able to not have so much con- connection to in a way that it actually ties us to this and doesn't allow us to be free.
0: It's, you know, it's funny because, you, you, I mean, luckily I don't care for watches. I care for time. And I, 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 I'm i very focused and firm on the construct of why we do the things we do, you know, for what outcome. How do we, you know, systematically create a life for some type of direction. We don't have to be uplift our eyes all the time to see that we, we're headed in the right place because a lot of what we do every day is all consuming. But, you know, I've always been about the, not being wasteful of, of our prime commodity and our prime commodity is time, is to be able to have the freedom of, of that time. You know, that's something that is is the greatest luxury in my view. And I don't, Uh, There's there there just there's there's so much inside of me that that understands that there's a responsibility when you have these attachments. So you want to attach to an idea, and you want to make things, and you want to be inspired by certain things. And at the same time, in my breath, in my world, I also carry this burdensome kind of heaviness of going. Well, I have ownership of a lot of property. You know, I still have to deal with a broken, failed, dysfunctional city. He doesn't know how to measure anything, coordinate anything. And I'm constantly having to deal with things that I I, I so vehemently dislike in all honesty, because I, I have, that's not any of the reason that I did what I mm. did. It's not the reason that I do what I do. Mm. It's, it is the great thief of time, especially in South Africa because, and especially in Johannesburg, because everything is the same. It's the same every second hour, there's an outage. You know, every single month, there's a problem with the council, you know, quantities of measurement. Every single day, there's some other complexity. And and you're dealing with these things with such astounding regularity that you couldn't explain this to people who live out of South Africa, because it's not the sort of thing that you ever have to tend to. So this makes you resilient in ways that challenging to explain to other people, right? But it also you can go, well, I, I've I've created um, guys, I know how to operate through this way, but it's super challenging. And it's like sometimes you just get fatigued from being, you know, body slammed. And it's like, oh, I just want to catch another wave. But, you know, the current's so hard against you that it's often challenging to get out to the wave. Right. You're only just getting dumped all the time. Yes. And... And that's why I'm I'm in this space now where I'm so cognizant of certain with the you know, all of these elements. The power of knowing that, okay, I'm in an exceptional position now because I can make good of what I already have. And maybe my visions changed a little. I wouldn't say it's diminished, but you know, when I first started it, I was so idealistic, you know, total youthful exuberance about this idea, well, I'm gonna change the world. You know, I'm going to change, and you can absolutely change the world, you know, in micro doses. I thought, well, the city of Joburg is going to be the most famous city in all of the world. And then there's certain things that you can recognize, well, you can only actually do that if everybody believes in that. And the whole system is driving towards the same narrative outcome, which I know it's not. So now I can go, well, I've now had to measure this down, which is not something I like to do is to diminish anything but in the diminishment of recognizing that I can now put 100% of my power into the things that I can have influence over, that can again be this catalytic moment that can create exceptionalism and enough of it and enough storytellers to get like their voice heard mm. that everyone else will want to do the same thing. And if it's not the identical same thing, then it's some part of – an aspect of finding exceptionalism in their own lives, exceptional storytelling in their own experience that we all want to hear. And that's why I've been so deliberate about this new iteration of what's happening in the city, about being very purposeful about finding those storytellers. So I think back to, and again, this is the power of you know, recognizing where I come from, and reimagining where I'd like to go and who I would like to take on this journey of storytelling with me is that I can go, well, the market was always exceptional because it was this exceptional canvas and thousands of people went there and they all had an amazing time and they met with each other and spoke to each other and made new friends. And I hear those stories all the time. I've heard those stories for you know almost two decades now. And how many people... Found their partners there, and how many people found you know their best friends there, and how many people just had have had the time of their lives there and that's an amazing narrative because that's there's real beauty in that that that's you know that's not about things or material things, and you know you know my adage about that which aren't you know, very comfortable with the things that you own ultimately own you is that i I have like decluttered from a world of that i don't care for and I, I i love the aesthetic consideration of a beautiful engineered thing. I love the, someone who's taken the time to do some nuanced artwork. And I have admiration for consideration and for people who spend time doing magical things. That's where I get the appeal in humanity comes from that for me. And I go, well, this next labyrinth of tale-telling is finding these people who I can surround myself with again who make me want to be a better me. And I think that that's, I'm in a position of amazing power right now, of influence to be able to hand pick these people again. In the beginning, I was doing the same thing without knowing. Mm. Now I can do the same thing and I can know that if I do it in a certain way, I can be purposeful, that I can almost filter this thing through. It can be the, The light can be much more potent.
1: So it's like a refinement in a way.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: And because you know yourself better, you know mm. the environment better, and whatever you, you know, the first round was a practice round or the first two rounds in a sense. And whereas now you actually, you understand how the game works. Yeah. Um, and, and I've said this to you also, like it, it does make you harder. You know, that innocence in a way has gone, yeah. which was part of the charm. For, for both for you and for the environment, in yeah. in a way, it was the novelty, and then you kind of mature and you step into your true in- integrity and conviction. But this time, you know it. Like mm-hmm. there's much more of a sense of it, and um, and doing that, you know that, you know all the attachment to the things or whatever it is can be. Um, you can you can transcend that, and you can take what you know and the knowledge because that comes with you. You know, and you can transplant that anywhere that you want to, but and you can do it now with absolute certainty and with absolute confidence because you've done it.
0: Well, the thing about it is, there's no absolute, absolute. So you can do it with with a severe, measured degree of assurance that you that you're going to be absolute about wherever you think this is going to go. But there's so many variant forces. These are the things you can go well. You're gonna. This is why you've got to do it with a, a personable kind of conviction. Because even if the outcome isn't as you desire, you've got to be mindful to be enjoying the experience of which you're guiding yourself. So it's not about I'm I'm trying to get to ten because ten might be a twelve. It might be a seven. Whatever. It's not not the, the actual measure, but. Direction, directionally, that at least I'm going to enjoy every step of one, right. two, three, four, five, six. You know, yeah. And and that's where you start to to understand that while we do the things we do, because we could very easily do the things we do because we've become so familiarized.
1: I think that's the beauty of the nature of both your work and mine. But the interesting thing is that. As long as you keep approaching whatever it is, even with the knowledge and the you're kind of more comfortable in in that with the wonder you know with the curiosity of a of a child with the charm of with the innocence, mm. all of those kinds of things because it's always new and it's always inspiring. do you want to tell us one or two of the new things that you will be bringing, some of the latest stuff that you say that you've got up your sleeve or that's that of course
0: I mean listen there, there's so many things on the go right now. I'm not I'm quite frankly, I'm, I'm swerving a little because I don't have enough, you know, human power to come and help me make these things. And, and that's what I'm looking for because I understand that that might've been the things that made it more challenging the first time around is actually helping to get a team of people that can be better in the service of a community and, and that we can make things faster than I was, be than I was previously able to make them. And, only because I'm making a lot of these things in the same environment, so you can't, you know, make a tree grow faster, or you can't. Sometimes you physically can't build things firmer or faster, but but you can you can bring enough, you can bring more things to play, and that's what I want to do. So, yeah, you know, when I was looking at reimagining the market, which has been closed for two years, going, like, what were the things that were exceptional about this place, and going, okay, well, I don't want to just reopen it and have the same thing i'm going to go well i'm so resolutely confident that the new product that's going to be created there's going to be even better than it was there before i'm willing to actually give it a new name so we don't have to be reliant on the the old things that were in the service of us and that was a challenging thing to go well this is a new name it's perceivably a new construct Part of the legacy of what it was is going to be fed into the system and it's going to be even better.
1: And this is the playground.
0: The playground. And, you know, it's opened up. It's been, you know, three and a half months now. And there's just every time, all I ever hear is that this place is so much better. And this is of a place that people used to go, this is the greatest place ever. Yeah. So that's reassuring. And that's from an experiential side. But there's an underlying labyrinth of power, in my view. And that is, how do we then take young storytellers who might not have had the same opportunity, might not have had the same conviction or drive as, as some of the market goes who start in the beginning, who've, you know, I, I've had, you know, I could rattle off literally dozens of people who started off at the market either as part-time little gigs or places to get away from their corporate jobs to people who have become, you know, own hundreds of restaurants or Major distributors, or they found their voice in this place, and they'll tell you about it. And I hopefully am going to get to a point now where we're going to film all of this storytelling because storytelling is just the most depth. It's the most meaningful thing. We are when you talk about we are the things we come from, and they are the things that they come from. Is that we are all thousands of years worth of storytelling right. inside of us, and that's where we get our our makeup, and we get to influence the next storytellers. And that's a power that we need to be resolute about, mindful of, and take ownership of. So, you know, these young I've, i found you know, a young guy that is is a curator for us now, and this has been taken on by a big brand because I headhunted a big brand who have hundreds of thousands of small business traders, and they much easier the storytelling narrative connector. And we have five spots at the market, and we basically are letting people tell their story for free and that they can slowly start to get to a point where they can build into um, restaurants and that we can put them into some of the other spaces and we can uplift and improve and mentor and make exceptional, help make exceptional, but their story is their story. We'll just be a megaphone. That's the one thing kind of in culture. That's mainly in streetwear at the moment doing the same thing and, again, brought on a big brand now with – Music, to have young musicians play to a platform of, you know, a thousand or two thousand people every weekend so that they can start to hear a voice and their careers can be amplified, you know, supersonically very quickly to a story of, you know, which is something that's so endemic in South African culture is this idea of car guards, you know, people stationary on the side of the road, ostensibly homeless who come and ask you for money for standing next to their car, your car, you know, and taking this idea of empowering people. And I now have 15 homeless people within the area who've all come in and they all dressed in a certain way and they get clothing and they get all sorts of other kind of luxuries and they on a salary and they become a welcoming committee for the neighborhood. And it's something that's so incontinence to what the expectation is of the city because people have embellished this idea in their minds that the city is a no-go zone and it's crime and it's uncomfortable, all that crap, quite frankly, that is not true that they believed in from that kind of mainstream narrative, we're now starting to to um, disentangle. Right. And we're starting to actually let the truth be pervasive, which is this idea that, wow, this is the actual story. There are homeless people. It's a reality. But how can we do something that can be so transformative? It doesn't just adjust their lives. It gives other people an opportunity to think that they could be responsible for adjusting other people's lives too.
1: Definitely, because it's the whole thing around caring. You know, if you if you show people respect and that you care about them, it will absolutely be reciprocated. Yeah. And, you know, in a way, like you talk about Bramfantine in, in your area, I mean, it is it does have this tale of utopia in the sense of we know where it can go, but we, we're doing our damnedest to, to get to go there. And so we're taking all of these elements into account because ultimately you want to be your own role model. Imagine if you could be your own role model. And mm. so many of the people that you're bringing in have never experienced that. So there's this continual role modeling as people move up the different tiers of life experience Um and, and come through the doors. And it's so, it's almost like you become a school. It's, yeah. like a, it's, it's like a weird idea, but they, they, it's a, and it's a family. So that's what you've almost created yeah. in the context of the space that you call bricks and mortar that is so much more than that. Yeah.
0: I don't call it that because I do feel like it's community. Right. And the thing is, you it's know, alive, a very, very firmly alive, yeah. but we're all learning from each other. And even though I might be the principal in this analogy, yes. I still need to be mentored. I still need to learn. I still need to develop. I still want more, you know, so it's within this, but it's like, what happens if you then had multiple different schools? And that I think will be the next tier and iteration of what I hope to do with the different things that I've got in the pipeline that are going to be in different cities and different experiences. But ostensibly they all come down to this underlying truth that, you know, that you need to be mindful. You need to listen intently and you need to hear the resonance of the earth's power and the people power. You need to find ways of connecting them together so you can create magic from them both.
1: Absolutely. And I think really, you know, in closing, that this is really about paying it forward. And we've come from a position where we were giving these opportunities. You know, we we're very privileged to have had many opportunities available to us. But I truly believe that we've used that as currency and that we've paid it forward and continue to pay it forward in a way where we are constantly learning as well and constantly changing our own stories so that we can bring more people into the fold, etc. So it's like, a, it's, 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 it's like water. It's moving all the time. And just to be a little bit ahead to know, you know, kind of what for, to put in front of the other, but also to be surprised and excited about what is being presented.
0: For sure. I mean, that's, that really is, you know, the ultimate wonder of being alive is that you have to, there's no, you know, ultimate, there's no perfection. There's no, you've just got to be sincere about yourself and the experience of this process. And to try and find, you know, those magnetic elements that give you resonance, that make you more enthusiastic about anything else. To get out of bed for in life is that you just have to open your eyes and pay attention and listen to your heart. And the sooner that you can start to do that, probably the better off you'll be because you'll get more experience in that state of being. And yeah. that's where, you know, thankfully you and I get to play with a lot of. And um, it's a wonderful gift that we both luxuriate and are very mindfully appreciative of.
1: Absolutely. There's something that you actually say here. I'm just trying to see if I can find it. Um, And you've got this quote, maybe you know it off by heart, um, on your wall in the office, at least you used to. And it says, (laughs) well, I can't find it. So you have to remember it. Um, But basically, it's if you can actually.
0: It talks talks to the idea of entrepreneurship. Yes.
1: Here you go. I live by this quote on the Wall of Play Fantine's offices. Entrepreneurship is living a few years of your life like most people won't so that you can spend the rest of your life living like most people can't. And it's interesting because the idea is really maybe we are living our best lives every day. We think we aren't because we think maybe does it have to be on a yacht somewhere? Does it have to be with a beautiful sunset? And, you know, those things are nice. But actually maybe it is just about continuously questioning yourself and reflecting all the time so that you refine it more and more and more to actually make your internal world and your external world integrate and meet in a way where you just have peace of mind.
0: Yeah, 100%. And, you know, and also to be able to have peace of mind and to fit all of those things together, that you just so eloquently explained, but also to be able to, once you recognize that within yourself, to be able to give it to others. And I think that's the next tier of power is that it's so clear to us about how you can find moments of gratitude or these clear spaces where you feel like, well, this, there's some magical thing that's happening over here. And it's not just, it's not because we want to keep it for ourselves. We want to give it to others. And that's where I think there's a, there's a magical, empowering moment, not only of empowering ourselves, but the gift of being able to give that, exp- that experience and that feeling to other people. Because the more of us who do it, the more of us experience it, the more the world gets to be, you know, greatly enhanced. And that's the world we want to live in.
1: Exactly, exactly. So speaking of gratitude, I just wanted to thank you for being my my numero uno guest and for making it so easy and comfortable and for us to be able to test the space and experiment. But I truly respect and admire you as a human being. You know that. Um, I, I respect your moral code that you live by, what you've manifested in the world, how you've manifested it. And just to say that it honestly is a privilege being your sister and that I love you dearly and Thank you for coming. It's I can't wait. I can't wait to, uh, to push play. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We really enjoyed our conversation together. So please watch the space for more inspiring conversations with phenomenal humans and support us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'd also love you to follow us at 360.DegreesHuman on Instagram. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to our conversation, go to the episode page at 360DegreesHuman.com, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter. If you live in Cape Town or are visiting, we'd love to see you at our next Rooftop Retreats. It's a midweek, mid-month, holistic, urban, mini-retreat and pop-up experience on rotating city rooftops, inspiring you to live whole. You can find us on Instagram at rooftop underscore retreats or on Facebook forward slash rooftop retreats. If you'd like us to curate and host a bespoke rooftop retreat, please get in touch with us. Special thanks to our technical team from Edible Audio with original music by Daniel Eppel, sound engineering by Alex Smiley, Kwameani Sambor and Tamlin Taylor. I look forward to sharing our next episode with you soon. So watch the space. Till then, live whole.